You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Today we conclude our study of the seven churches found here in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. So if you're joining us this morning here and you've got the Bible app on your device, you can follow along with the notes and quotes. You can take your own notes and highlights this morning from the Bible app. Uh, If you're listening live or watching live on Facebook, do us a favor and uh, drop us a comment and share this video. If you're watching this later in the week, share this video on your page. And we're glad that you're joining us uh, digitally. We turn now to Revelation 3, verse 14, where we have the most uh, scathing of all letters written by Jesus to the seven churches. Here we see the least commendation compounded with the most criticism and correction and perhaps what I would consider at the end the greatest crown offered to any of the churches. And these are all written to the church that of all churches seem to have, at least on the surface, the most success and prosperity. Often on the surface, things appear much different than what's happening underneath. Or we have an impression that we're one way, yet the truth is something, well, quite different. I was reading this week about the Lighthouse of Alexandria. The Lighthouse of Alexandria was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And at that time, and for many centuries later, it was the largest man-made structure on the planet. Uh, Over 300 feet tall, about the size of the Statue of Liberty in New York, or Big Ben, the clock tower, in London, England. It was actually commissioned by Ptolemy I, and the purpose was that this beacon light, like our modern-day lighthouses, uh, was that ships would find their way safely into the Alexandrian port. Well, the building was completed, and at the base of it, again, commissioned by the king, Ptolemy, Uh, The architect, Sostratus, actually chiseled in the ground on the base of the structure his own name. He dedicated this lighthouse to himself with his own name uh, engraved. Yet on top of that engraving, he wrote the inscription of the king of Ptolemy, the king, and he wrote that in gypsum. And his purpose in doing that was that over the centuries, as the waves would crash against the gypsum, as everyone said, oh, this is commissioned by the king, that the king's name is written on it. Over time, over the centuries, the waves would crash against the gypsum and it would eventually uh, clear off and so Stratus's name would remain. Uh, so that over time, people would know the true name, uh, his own name. Like you and I, there's often a superficiality to our honor and recognition and worship of the Lord. Oh, oh, we'll plaster God's name on top of things that we do. But underneath the surface, there's another name that deep down we hope will receive all the praise and all the ultimate glory. Things look one way on the surface, and yet underneath, there's something quite different. It's what is beneath that matters. And often you and I will stand before God, and we have this impression of ourselves. Right? Am I the only one? That, that, that I'm doing some great things for God. That I'm kind of all that in a bag of Fritos. And God, in a sense, is grateful. He should be grateful. What a blessing it is to have me. You ever thought that way? Lord, you're so blessed to have me. I'm so, you know, blessed worthy. In fact, you're indebted to me. You need to bless me now because I'm so awesome for you. And that is our perception often of who we are. But what's the reality? 
See, that's why it's so important that we are studying the seven churches. Why? So we can get an accurate assessment of what the Lord Jesus says to his church. And when we look at the various churches mentioned here, uh, on the surface, we may get confused. Uh, We look at the advertising and the real thing, and they're quite different. Uh, For example, Smyrna, Philadelphia. These seem to be churches where not much was happening. Uh, Jesus, though, had nothing corrective uh, to say to them. Laodicea, on the other hand, was a church for which Jesus had nothing to commend. Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're being persecuted, and they're really poor as a fellowship. And yet Jesus, he says, you're rich, you're beloved. Whereas Laodicea, the wealthiest city and church that Jesus addresses, and yet he calls them poor and even nauseating. Smyrna, in particular, realized how much they needed Jesus. But as we'll see in a moment, the church of Laodicea, well, they had booted Jesus out of the building. Today we're going to study a sad and true example of what can happen to a church, and the church is composed of people, what can happen to Christ followers who completely reject Christ. Laodicea, if you're taking note, is the church none of us want to be. Last week we looked at Philadelphia. That's the church we all want to be. This is the church none of us want to be. I was going to post on Facebook live this morning. We're studying the lukewarm. Join us for the lukewarm church. I said, I don't want to post that. Join us for the empty church. I don't want to. So I just said Shoreline Live. I didn't want to kind of misrepresent us. As we open this text, these are seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor. These are real people with real pastors and elders. And Jesus was directly addressing them. However, Jesus' words also speak to every church and every believer. It's possible for you and I to hear this message this morning that Jesus speaks to the church of Laodicea and think, oh, that's for me. And so as we open this text, what would Jesus say to us about us? Uh, You know our outline, if you're taking note, we've been following this helpful outline as we've been going through the seven church study. And if this is your first time joining us, uh, I want to just encourage you to go back and read the other six churches. Uh, this one, as Micah just prayed, is a heavy one. Is a heavy one. Uh, but with each of these churches, we're seeing the city that represents the church. We're seeing a characteristic of Christ that points us back to chapter 1, something Jesus says about himself. Uh, we see in most of the churches a commendation. Everybody give me a thumbs up this morning. We see a, a commendation. That's an attaboy. We also see a criticism. You can give me a thumbs down. It's okay. It's your only time to do that ever at Shoreline. Boo, a thumbs down. But then Jesus gives a correction, a way to turn it back into accommodation. He says, this is how to fix this. Jesus doesn't leave you alone and say, well, you're broken. I can't use you. No, he can correct us. And he corrects us through his word. And then for those who overcome, man, there is a reward. There is a crown that he has for you. And I love this crown that's listed here for Laodicea. So, with that in mind, let's look back at chapter 3, starting in verse 14, and we're going to walk through that outline. Verse 14, Jesus says this, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Right, Laodicea. Would you circle that word, Laodiceans? The name Laodicea means the people rule, or the people judge. The name Laodicea was a very popular lady's name. Back in the day, moms, so if you want to name your daughter, Laodicea was a popular name. It was named after the emperor Antiochus II's wife. It's actually named after her. 
And uh, toward the ends of, uh, end of the Roman Republic, uh, under the first emperors, it became one of the most important and flourishing cities uh, that are mentioned here. In fact, one of its citizens actually bequeathed all of his wealth, all of his uh, money, his property to the people of the city. It was kind of like being in the audience for Oprah when she gives away a car. Right? And so this, this guy said, I'm giving everyone in the crowd, everyone in the city, part of my property, part of my money. So the people immediately became wealthy. Uh, it was the seat of large money transactions, and they had a big trade uh, of wool. But the citizens began to develop a taste for Greek art, and they were very distinguished in science and literature. Not only that, but it had a big medical school and known for an ointment that would treat your ears, and they used Phrygian powder, which you would rub on your eyes. We'll see why that's important later. And many of the inhabitants of Laodicea were Jewish. Um, this area, way inland, was subject to frequent earthquakes, and eventually people abandoned the city. Uh, but its ruins, even today, show how great of a magnitude this place was. In fact, the Laodiceans were so self-sufficient, so rich, that in AD 60, there was a huge earthquake that rocked the city. And Rome said, hey, we need to send help. And the Laodiceans said, we don't need any help. And they were able, they didn't need Calvary relief, so to speak. <laughs> they were able to rebuild their city completely from scratch. Tacitus, the historian of Rome, says Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of their own resources and with no help from us. Uh, now, the city is fascinating not in much as what it contained, but where it was located as a city. I think we have a picture uh, of the actual city with some rivers. I think we have that, guys. Um, so you'll see Laodicea around the middle left of your screen. And it's located in the Lycus River Valley. Uh, but what's interesting is that uh, it connected, this, this river connected to the Meander River. Uh, Laodicea was downstream from uh, Hierapolis. Right? And that's important uh, because um, Hierapolis had a famous hot spring, hot mineral springs. And people would go and visit there. Uh, kind of like, you know, you frequent a resort, you go to the hot tub. People would go there and they would enjoy the warmth of these baths, and they thought maybe they possessed healing powers. Now, Laodicea was upstream from Colossae. Remember, Paul wrote the epistle to the Colossians, so very close in uh, proximity. And what's interesting is Colossae was known for very cold springs. And so if you tap some water from Colossae, you scoop some water, let's bring it back. Let's get back to Laodicea. By the time you brought the water back, well, it had become lukewarm. By the time you brought the warm water back from Hierapolis, well, the warmth had faded and it had become tepid. Uh, we'll see why this is important in a minute. But if there's ever a city where you were the self-made man, where you were completely independent without any needs, it was Laodicea. That sounds good on the surface, but what's happening underneath? Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. These things says the, and then he says three things, the amen. And then he says, the faithful and true witness. And then he says, the beginning of the creation of God. If you're taking note, the first thing he says is the amen. The amen. Now, why would someone call themselves the amen? Isn't that something we pray at the end of a prayer? Uh, why would someone be called amen? So, so often we just say the word amen, and we don't even know why we say it. Someone says, all right, in Jesus' name. And then everyone's waiting. Yeah, I, I, I did, He didn't say amen. We can't eat yet. My kids all the time are sneaking food, right, as we're praying. And I'm looking at them, stop eating, and they're going to take a bite. Here's what the amen means. It means firm, 
It means faithful. It means verily. Uh, it can also be at the beginning of a discourse saying surely, and then we kind of say the, the, the point, the truth. Or it can be at the end, which is where we're agreeing together saying, yes, so be it. May it be so. It was a custom in the synagogues that passed over into the Christian assemblies. That whenever someone read something that they had uh, spoken about, they offer a solemn prayer to God. Well, the others in the audience would respond and say, let's practice it. Amen. Amen. So they would say something true and the audience would respond with, Amen. And so that would basically be, hey, so be it in my life. I agree with what you're saying. May it happen in my life. A remarkable word. Today we just kind of rattle it off and we don't understand why we say it. Because it's routine. Is it, may I say it, superficial? Isn't it interesting that even the word amen, that Jesus says, I'm the amen. The people were praying this in such a superficial way that it didn't even mean anything to them. Uh, Jesus says, wait, hold on, I'm the amen. You're praying prayers and saying amen, I'm the amen. In fact, Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. On the screen, Paul says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him, in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Okay, that simply means all the promises, the covenants of God are, by the personal work of Jesus, guaranteed and confirmed. And so... All that we have in Christ is guaranteed. It is the, it is amen. He is the amen. But not only that, Jesus is, secondly, the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. You see, in, in an age where there's many false witnesses, false gospels, false teachers, that Jesus stands up as the faithful and true witness. You go on Facebook and someone posts an article and you go, oh my goodness, please tell me you did some research. That is, that is a fake news source. That is not a true news source. And as you go and you're like, let me snope this for you. That is not true. That didn't happen. And you kind of point that out. Right? Uh, it's, it's, Jesus says, I'm the faithful and true. You can count on my word. You can count on what I have to say. My, my statement is completely trustworthy and accurate. He testifies of the Father and his testimony is sure. Now you compare that to the church of Laodicea. They are, by contrast, unfaithful and false. They're unregenerate and they're the false church. And they're a bad witness, and we'll see why in a minute. But Jesus, he says, I'm the real deal. And my witness of the Father and of truth, you can trust it. You can believe it. Not only is he the amen, the faithful and true witness, but notice the third thing. This is a little confusing. Maybe when Micah read this, he said, wait a minute, what does that mean? The beginning of the creation of God. Now, some would misinterpret this as meaning that Jesus was the first created being. That's obviously false. A better translation of the Greek uh, word arche uh, is the source, the ruler, the origin. Uh, it's not as much that Jesus has a beginning as he is the beginning. See the difference? Jesus is the source uh, from which creation flows. And sometimes we think, you know, I can do things alone, but we have to get back to the source. David Gusick says this idea is the first in prominence rather than in sequence. Uh, a better translation of this is, instead of the beginning of God's creation, the ruler of God's creation. He's the ruler of God's creation. I wonder if the church in Laodicea, in that region, had a misunderstanding of who Christ was. And they looked at Jesus and they doubted his statement about himself. They weren't sure if he was the faithful. They weren't sure if he actually was a created being. In fact, just up the, down the stream in Colossae, Paul had to write this in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, he said... 
Uh, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, Jesus is the source, the beginning, the ruler of all creation. Now that word creation, especially in the last hundred years, has become questioned, debated, and even replaced by Darwinian evolution. And I wonder this morning, like, when we talk about evolution, the evolutionary theory is exactly that. It's a theory. Darwin himself admitted there's got to be some scientific way to explain God. But the biggest problem with evolution that I have is that it purports to be scientific. Uh, so when we hear scientific, we hear, oh, well, then that must settle it. And it's so, so Christianity is not scientific, right? So we kind of make that wrong deduction. But see, scientific means that the scientific method is being utilized, right? You guys remember the scientific method from school. That's where we have a theory, we have a hypothesis, and then we have a, a, an experimental kind of control, uh, and, and then a formulated conclusion, right? And so evolution takes their theory and hypothesis, and then it goes right to the conclusion uh, without experimentation. And some scientists will say, well, so does Christianity. Okay, well then let's call evolution what it is, a faith-based belief, right? Not, not science, not fact. And so the idea, um, we'll leave that up for a minute, guys. The idea behind evolutionary theory is that all matter can evolve over time, billions of years. It began with small elements and then the Big Bang that formed cells. And over billions of years, uh, we have organisms. And okay, here's the problem with that concept. This problem was realized and written in this book called Darwin's Black Box. I encourage you guys to read it, to check it out. It's a little heady, it's a little advanced, but man, it's powerful. In this book, the problem with evolution was exposed. Here's the problem. You can't take a cell and break it down any smaller than a cell. Uh, if you go smaller than a cell, you're in trouble. In fact, here's a cell. You can't see what each of those represent, but you've got a cell wall or membrane, you have cytoplasm, you've got the nucleus, and you've got mitochondria. Remember that from science, those little kind of things that float around in the cell? You can't have anything smaller than that and still call it life. So if evolution is true, you have to have life coming from non-life. Okay? And so they break this down. They say the same concept is true with a mousetrap. If you were to take a mousetrap and you were to take one piece away from the mousetrap, just one item, take the wood block away, take the spring away, take the cheese away. We don't have a mousetrap anymore. The same is true of the cell. We can't break the cell down any smaller. So we live in a day where God's creation is questioned, even in the church. And yet Jesus, he completely confounds that. He says, no, no, no. This case has been settled. The question, uh, the conclusions have been concluded. I'm the ruler of God's creation. I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and the true witness. And then he says in verse 15, I know your works. To the church of Laodicea, they thought, all right, yeah, he knows our works. This is a good thing. Well, you know what? It's not a commendation. I mean, I guess it's encouraging to know that Jesus knows what's happening under the surface this morning. You may be here today and you think, no one knows about my sin. Maybe your husband who's committing adultery. By the very nature of adultery, someone knows that you're committing adultery. You're completely delusional if you don't think anyone knows. Maybe this morning there's a young person who's looking at pornography and you think no one knows. And maybe deep down you're an older person and you're harboring resentment and anger towards someone. You think nobody knows this. 
Maybe you're beginning in your Christian family to veer away from your faith and you're starting to reject the claims of Christ inwardly. You're beginning to slide down the slippery slope of compromise, but you think no one knows. And Jesus this morning says, I know. I know your works. I know what's going down on the inside. It doesn't look like anyone else knows, but I know. One blistering hot day, there was a woman who decided to have some guests for dinner. And so mom asked four-year-old Johnny if he would say grace. He said, but I don't know what to say. And gathered there around the dinner table were these guests and Mom says, just say what you hear mom say. And so Johnny obediently bowed his head and said, Oh Lord, why did we have to invite these ignorant people over on a hot day like today? <laughs> you may believe this morning, no one knows, but you know, Jesus knows. Jesus' assessment is true. And he looks at the church that seems so successful. And here's what he has to say. He has nothing positive, nothing commendable, only criticism, only correction. Look at the rest of verse 15. He says, I know your works, that you are, here it is, neither are cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Three times he mentions the difference between being cold and hot. He says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Can we change that? Can we make that a little softer? Can we, what's the Greek here, right? Vomit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are. Here's his assessment. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, they have deeds, but they're not to be complimented for them. And notice with me, there's three things that Jesus criticizes to the church in Laodicea. Number one, uh, very obvious, they're lukewarm. They're lukewarm. Uh, Laodicea didn't have its own water supply in the city, which left them incredibly susceptible during a military attack. The intruding army would surround the city, cut off the water supply, and they didn't have any excess, so they would be cut off, and eventually they would surrender. Now, they did have aqueducts that ran to those other two cities I just mentioned, but by the time the hot water and the cold water arrived, they had become tepid, room temperature. You guys know this, when you leave something out from the fridge, it eventually becomes room temperature. Something cold, like ice cream, is ruined. It becomes soppy, gross, chocolatey milk, right? Uh, cookies and cream ice cream, it's gross. You've taken something out of the, the oven, something warm and delicious, like pizza, you set it on the counter, and then something happened and you forgot, and you came back and you went to take it. Well, some of you actually like cold pizza, so that doesn't work. But essentially, lukewarm food, lukewarm water, it's gross, it tastes bad. Uh, it's, it's not room temperature. We want it to be warm or cold. In fact, the word lukewarm, if we're taking note, it means this. It means tepid, <coughs> half-hearted, unenthusiastic, unexcited, indifferent, apathetic, or subdued. Could it be that Jesus is saying that, not about their water supply, listen, but about their very souls, about their life, about their heart? Lukewarm Christians are worshipers at the first church of Judas. Judas is one of the twelve, you know, a supposed follower of Jesus. Yet all along, Jesus says, no, 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 you're a son of perdition. But Judas was close enough in proximity to Jesus to hear his words and see his miracles, but far enough away in heart that he remained unregenerate and unconverted. There are many who worship at the first church of Judas. Spurgeon says this of them. He says they're neither hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness. 
They're not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin or zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. The church today is lukewarm, apathetic about sin. We become lukewarm about our love for God, about truth, about the importance of standing firm in what we believe. And this church, Laodicea, wanted to be fence-sitters. We want to sit on the fence. What if Satan owns the fence? Uh, we become stagnant where there's no outlet. We sit alone. We die alone. We're unexcited as others around us die while we smile like a gospel mute. I believe the church becomes lukewarm when the preaching of God's word takes a backseat. And we talked about this last week, the importance of biblical preaching. How did this church become lukewarm? Uh, I would surmise by the lack of of gospel-centered preaching in the pulpit. Uh, I would say by the lack of gospel-centered living uh, in the pew, so to speak. One man said this, the church has failed to tell me that I'm a sinner. The church has failed to deal with me as a lost individual. The church has failed to offer me salvation in Jesus Christ alone. The church has failed to tell me of the horrible consequences of sin, the certainty of hell, and the fact that Jesus Christ alone can say. He said, we need more of the last judgment and less of the golden rule, more of the living God and the living devil as well, more of a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The church must bring me not a message of cultivation, but of rebirth. I might fail that kind of church, but that kind of church will not fail me. Jesus says, I'm about to expel you out of my mouth. Now, I did a Greek search on this word, vomit. Some translations say spit. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The Greek word is emeo, E-M-E-O. We actually get our English word emetic from it. And emetic is a mixture that doctors give a person if they swallow poison so that they will expel, they'll vomit it out. And so this is, this is the exact word that's used. It's, he's going to expel this church. It makes him want to vomit. Jesus rejects this kind of Christianity. And there's nothing mediocre here about Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance, but the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Jesus says, you need to be cold or hot. Now, I understand the hot. Like, yeah, I want to be passionate. I want to be zealous. I want to be on faith. He tells them later, be zealous. But cold? Why would Jesus say, I wish you were cold? Why? Well, listen very carefully. If you're a Christ follower... And you begin, you've known Jesus, you begin to run after being cold back to the things of this world. Eventually you're going to see, if you're following Christ, ah, I'm not into this. And you'll go back warm. But see, if Satan can get you in a place where you're kind of lukewarm, you're not really back in the world, you're not really in the church, well then he's warm. And Jesus says, I wish that you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. Secondly, Jesus says that they are, number two, self-sufficient. If you're taking note... Self-sufficient. Jesus says in verse 17, you say that you're rich, you're wealthy, and you have need of nothing. The name Laodicea means the people rule, the people judge. In other words, we make the judgments. We make the call. We're relying on ourselves. We don't need help from Rome. We got this. They're not denying self, but relying on self. They ignored the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, that he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world 
and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer to that is nothing. That Jesus gave his life for us, and we struggle with giving him the first fruits of our morning. Try to save our life and avoid denying stuff. Now listen, please don't miss this today. One of the, one of the most damning lies that Satan whispers to us is that we can be self-sufficient. Uh, that we can rely on our own morality or our own righteousness for salvation. Even some of us more mature believers can come to church and say, you know, I, I know the Lord, and I'm good, but I'm good. Like, I don't need him. I'm in a place where I kind of got everything. I'm good. I pat myself on the back. I'm good. You look at the pride of King Saul, right? He, he at one point, builds a statue of himself. Like, that's insane. I mean, let someone else build a statue. Don't build your own statue. And here's what Samuel says to him. This is so prophetic. Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you were small in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? In other words, you used to be small in your own eyes, and then the Lord was blessing you. The Lord was building you up. But when we start becoming self-sufficient, we're relying on ourselves. Notice the church says, hey, hey, we have need of nothing. We have no needs this morning. It's time for prayer. We're going to share some prayer requests. And have you been in that setting where everyone's like, I'm good. I don't need any prayer. Like, life's good. I'm, I'm awesome. You know, just, just pray that I, uh, I, let me pray for you. Right? And so we, we just offer this attitude. Consider these words from one of our American presidents. He said this, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years of peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. We're too proud to pray to the God that made us. You know who said that? Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, 1863. You see, the reality is that we cannot save ourselves with our good works. You're not capable this morning of saving yourself, but you're qualified to receive salvation if you confess your need for it and receive Christ as Savior. The Laodiceans didn't see their need for God, mostly because of their wealth. And Jesus condemned often rich people as a majority because it's very hard to show them their need for salvation. Why? Because riches can pull blinders over your eyes and make you think that you don't need God. It's not a sin to be rich, but often our riches can blind us. Uh, our bank accounts are full. We feel a sense of security, those of us who aren't so rich. But when our bank accounts are in the red and things are bad, well, we find ourselves, our prayer life increases a little bit. Hey, pray for me, right? Uh, the modern Western church, uh, in comparison to the world, is very rich. And so we need to guard against this false sense of security and the love of money, self-sufficient. Thirdly, uh, Jesus criticizes the church that they were, number three, deceived. They were deceived. Notice that, again, in verse 17, Jesus said, This is what you're saying about yourself. You're saying you're all these things, and yet what you don't know is that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Note the striking contrast between what they thought they were and what they truly were. They thought they were rich, but Jesus says, no, you're poor. 
They thought, oh, we don't need anything. But Jesus says, you're the most needy of all. No clue that they were spiritually poor, blind, pitiful. Isn't that scary? You could think all along that you're doing great things for God, and yet you're deceived. You've been lying to yourself. I hope none of us this morning are living in deception. The fearful thing about deception is you don't realize that you're self-deceived. That's the, the scary thing. And what disparity there is between their self-perception and the truth. Living in your own reality is, by definition, delusion. Right? You're deluded. You're living in delusion. Now, I've been working out lately. Um, not that I should mention that right after I said delusion. I shouldn't, shouldn't do that. But I find myself lately doing uh, everything that I can do to avoid fast food. Is there anyone here who eats fast food regularly? Hashtag no shame. Okay. All right. Good. You guys uh, pray for those guys. No, I'm kidding. All right, I know I talk often about donuts and barbecue and popcorn because I'm a Christian. But um, <coughs> lately, sincerely, I've been trying to change up my workout routine and kind of avoid certain places. Um, but it's hard, right? You're driving by and there, there's that billboard on the interstate. You're driving by, you're like, oh, man, look at the burger, look at the fries, right? There's mouth water. I just want to wash it down with a, a, a refreshing Coke. Right? So you, I'm yelling at the billboard, get behind me, Satan, right? And then I'm looking at it again. Now I'm swerving off the road. I'm just going to pull over real quick. Just, it's going to take five minutes. Five minutes of pleasure, five hours of heartburn, right? I'm going to worship at the altar of Greece, right? What happened? What happened? I was lured by the advertisements, the perception of what that burger was going to be and what it actually was. In fact, I want to play off this. We've done this before at Shoreline, but let me just give you the advertisement versus the reality. And there's the Big Mac on the left, all right? And there's the actual burger, if you're lucky. That was the most attractive angle. I think we have uh, Taco Bell, because I know some of you guys like to go south of the border, all right? There's the crunchy taco. <laughs> it doesn't measure up too well. And then, of course, I'm sorry, but Burger King. <laughs> I love slightly fluffed up. I love that. We gave it a little fluff, all right? Uh, big difference between perception and truth. In like manner, the church of Laodicea had the perception, we're doing great. But they were self-deceived. Is that you here this morning? If I were to ask you, how's marriage? Everybody looks at your marriage and thinks you're a great example. How are things? Self-perception. How are things? If I were to ask you this morning, how's your walk with Jesus, bro? Let's just talk face to face, eye to eye. How's your walk with Jesus? Would you say, it's great, it's fine, it's not great. I need prayer. Help me. Help me, Lord. Self-perception versus truth. Well, here's the correction. Verse 18, Jesus says this. I counsel you. This is the counsel from Jesus this morning. He says, I've got something to offer you. I'd like you to buy this. Buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Buy from me white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Isn't that lovely? The Lord wants to not expose your nakedness. He wants to clothe you. He wants to cover it. He says, thirdly, I want to sell you this anointing salve to anoint your eyes with this eye salve that you may see. And then he says something glorious in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Notice Jesus loves them. The idea of being zealous is to be hot, to not be lukewarm and ineffective. Jesus offers three remedies here. He says, gold, clothing, 
and salve. Because they're so rich, Jesus says, I'm going to offer you these for for sale. You don't have to run to the fashionable mall for help. These three are found in Christ. First, he says gold. Gold naturally comes unrefined. When you put gold in a furnace, the heat begins to draw the impurities. They rise up to the surface. It's dross, this impurity, and it's scraped off by the goldsmith. And the gold becomes more pure and more perfect, unblemished when the dross is removed. And God says perhaps the only way that the lukewarm, selfish, deceived person will experience true riches is, listen, through the hardship and the heat of persecution and trial, the refiner's fire. Maybe this morning you're so self-sufficient you don't realize you're heading towards a trial. And this is that hard place where life hands us struggles and then we hand God our dross so he can perfect us. And they needed to experience a little hardship and consequence so that they would return to the Lord. Many people have talked about the goldsmith and the removal of dross. And they say that gold can get to the point in its purity where the, the, the goldsmith can actually look at the surface of the gold and see his own reflection. Uh, isn't that awesome? What a great picture of what the Lord wants to do in our life. Gold. Jesus says, I offer you, secondly white garments. Now, Laodicea exported wool, but it was black wool. They were known as those who were exporters of black wool. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus says, let me, let me give you white clothing to cover your nakedness, not the alluring black clothing that the world offers. Now, this is not a, con- a condemnation towards you if you wear black clothing. Okay? This is a picture of the righteousness of Christ described throughout the New Testament as something that we're clothed in. Uh, these white garments would cover their nakedness. And thirdly, Jesus uh, offers them medicine, known for its wealth as a city, but it had a famous clinic where they took this powder from a stone and they would mix it with liquid. It would rub on your eyes and it was supposed to heal you of uh, blindness or cure bad eyesight. Jesus says, you need some of that, but not physically, you need it spiritually. You need to buy this so that you can see. Isn't that awesome? The remedy... For the lukewarm church is a reliance upon God in trial. It's the righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. And it's to truly see Jesus without hindrance. Notice in verse 20, the great invitation. Jesus says, behold, that means pay attention. Look, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him. And he with me. Isn't that interesting? First, that Jesus is outside of the door of the church. He's outside knocking. This church has rejected Christ. They put their faith in their own wealth, worldliness, and wisdom. And they've kicked Christ out of the door. He says, I want you to hear me. I want you to open the door. And I'm promising an intimate dinner. Uh, the Greeks would eat three times a day. They'd eat kind of a basic breakfast. They'd have a snack in the afternoon and then at dinner. They would invite guests into their home and have this long extended time of communicating, of fellowship, feasting, and just getting intimately in uh, touch with one another, to know one another. And Jesus is saying, I'd like to have that type of relationship with you where I'm not outside of the door. One man said this, every man is the Lord of his house or of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates of it. He has the mournful prerogative and privilege of refusing to open. But if he refuses, he's blindly at strife with his own blessedness. He's a miserable conqueror. Wow. Perhaps that's descriptive of you this morning. You grew up at church thinking, hey, God's impressed. And calloused, you sat and still sit unmoved. 
You smile and keep up appearances, yet you refuse to bow your knee to God in Christ. This morning, I don't offer you dead religion or philosophy, but a relationship with the personal work of Christ. And Jesus stands at the door of your soul this morning, not your grandfather's door, not your mom and dad's door, not your wife's door. You'll either open the door or ignore it. But Jesus is knocking. This morning, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler and source and sustainer of all creation, He created you and He loves you. And you know, He loves you so much that He's patiently knocking at the door of your heart. And He's inviting you to open the door to receive Him. The question is, will you trust your life to Christ today? Look with me as we close, right before we close at the crown. Promise to those who overcome, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will, look at this, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Isn't that amazing? We can either be overcome by evil or overcome evil with good. And this promise, I believe, far exceeds any promises that he's made to the other six churches. That Jesus here gives the chance for you and I to sit with he and his father on his throne. One person said this, Just as Christ was declared the victor over death by his resurrection and ascension to sit at the right hand of the father, so believers follow Christ in victory to join him on his throne and reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12 There's no greater reward or higher dignity than to rule and reign with Christ. Amen? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This isn't a message just for Laodicea, just for Smyrna, just for Ephesus. You know that, right? I was speaking to one of our shoreliners recently, and I said, uh, I said so what do you think of this study? How, how have you been enjoying it? And he said, man, it's been amazing. You know, I thought, I thought Ephesus, the church that left its first love, I thought that was me. I was like, man, that is me. And then we got to Pergamum, the compromising church. And I thought, oh, that's me. I'm Pergamum. And then we got to Sardis. And I thought, man, I'm dead like the church. That's me too. I'm all of these churches. <laughs> that's correct. They're about us. But some have taken the seven churches and they've made an interesting application when looking at the lens of church history. I find this fascinating. It's not the intended interpretation, but we can certainly make the application Making the application that the seven churches are literal, but also figurative and may fit into applying to different time periods throughout the church age. And neither Jesus nor John specifically state that, but I think it's a fascinating bit of application when you break the seven churches down and look at them through the lens of church history. Can we do that for a minute? Look at this. On the screen, the church at Ephesus was the apostolic church. Many people believe they represent the church from Pentecost to AD 70 fall of Jerusalem. Then they look at Smyrna, the persecuted church, and they would take the time period from AD 70 to 316, the troubled church. And then when the church became a state church, they would apply that to Pergamum from AD 316 to 800, the lazy or the compromising church. Uh, then the medieval church of Thyatira would be from AD 800 to 1517, the worldly church. As Sardis, they believe, represents the modern church, where there was dead Protestantism, not the Protestantism that is alive, the dead, from AD 1517 to 1740. And then there was a turn in 1740, the Church of Philadelphia, the missionary church, 
until 1948, the faithful church. And so then they would say the church of Laodicea represents the apostate church, the church from 1948 until today. They would say we are living in the church of Laodicea. Now, it isn't fair to say every church member is Laodicea. That wouldn't be fair. Uh, Joseph Seiss speaks to this uh, real quick on the screen. He says there are Protestant papists and papists, uh, I can't even say that word, Protestants, sectarian, anti-sectarians, and partyists who are not schismatics, holy ones in the midst of abounding defection and apostasy, and unholy ones in the midst of the most earnest and active faith, light in dark places and darkness in the midst of light. In other words, not every one of us is the church of Laodicea. Okay? But if we're applying this to us, that means the Western church, the American church, is Laodicea. Listen, we are Laodicea. Not shoreline, but you and I. We exist in a place that's very scary. Think about it. We have more denominations than ever. More churches than ever. More Christians than ever. We have more Bible translations than ever. More overseas missionaries than ever. More resources than ever before, like podcasts, websites, radio broadcasts, books, seminars that have ever existed in the history of Christendom. And we have more money than ever before. We're wealthy, we're extravagant, we're comfortable. And yet we find Jesus outside of his church. Why is that? I want to explain that as we close. Would you close your Bibles with me? And we're going to invite the band to come forward. We're going to close with a song. We're going a little bit over time today. I've asked this question before, but what would it look like if Satan took over a city? In your mind, you picture widespread violence and deviant sexualities, pornography, like in vending machines. Churches are closed down and any worshipers drag the city hall. A half century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, he gave a CBS radio audience a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. Here's what he said. He said, all of the bars... And the pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The kids would say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And then he said this, the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. See, it's not more people, programs, power that make a church successful. It's not buildings, budgets, or business principles. It isn't esteem in the world's eyes or how dialed in their production seems. A, a church is only as healthy as its reliance upon the Word of God and the God of the Word. And for us this morning, as we wrap up this whole series, we're going to dive into Malachi next week and... That'll lead us right up to Easter. It's going to be a glorious kind of spring here at the church. I'm excited to see what God's going to do. But as we wrap this up this morning, this series, you bow your heads and close your eyes. Are you Laodicea? Are you a self-made man or woman? Do you confess this morning? Not your own goodness, but your own wretchedness. Can you say, I'm poor, I'm pitiful, I'm blind and naked apart from Christ? See, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who confess their spiritual poverty are the very ones qualified and fit to receive grace. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. 
Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com.